We're gathered together this evening for a truly momentous occasion. Hey, everyone. This is Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. On today's subscriber-only episode of 5 to 4, the hosts discuss former President Donald Trump's appointees to the federal bench. As you'll hear, federal courts have an enormous impact on the Supreme Court. Appeals of federal cases shape the Supreme Court's docket. Seven of the nine justices currently seated on the Supreme Court were federal judges. And like the Supreme Court, the federal courts are a partisan battleground, where conservatives have long had the upper hand. What I want to do is make a lasting contribution to the country, and by appointing uh, and confirming these strict constructionists to the courts who are in their late 40s or early 50s, uh, I believe, working in conjunction with the administration, we're making a generational change in our country that will be... uh, repeated over and over and over down through the years. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have caused our liberty to slowly and permanently recede like the Greenland ice sheet. (laughs) I am Peter, and I'm here with Michael. Hey, everybody. I'm pleased you did the Greenland ice sheet. I, I you, I'm taking recommendations, Michael. <laughs> Rhiannon taking the week off, everybody. Just FYI, she's busy representing vulnerable people yeah. who are at the mercy of our brutal legal system. Michael and I will never miss an episode for that reason. <laughs> that is our promise to you. We know what to prioritize, and that's the podcast. I do all the good I need in my life. Right here on 5-4. That's right. <laughs> Making the world a better place. <laughs> one episode at a time. If one of you listening decides to become a public defender because of hearing us, then it's sort of like I became one, right? It's like the same basic impact. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, seriously, though, Rhiannon went a whole year without missing an episode. I know a lot of you say that she's your favorite due to uh, sexism against men. And <laughs> yeah. um, we've also had some people say that she's their least favorite due to sexism against women. Uh, I think that one's probably a little more serious than the sexism against men one. (laughs) All right. Today we are talking about the damage done to the federal courts by former and future President Donald Trump. We talked a good bit on the pod about his three Supreme Court appointments and Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. But today we are going to focus on the lower federal courts where Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell Alongside the Federalist Society, appointed a parade of right-wing psychos who will shape our law for decades to come. We'll talk about who they are, what they believe, and what we think Democrats and the left should be doing to counteract it. Let's do it. This is our first time really deviating, significantly at least, from our focus on the Supreme Court itself. But I think it's important that we talk about this for a few reasons. First, the lower courts are like a pipeline to the Supreme Court, and the next generation of justices will be drawn from their ranks. Second, the character of the lower courts shapes the cases that the Supreme Court receives, right? The Supreme Court is often constrained by the approach of the courts below, and third, most people's experience with the federal courts is with the lower courts. You know, the, the Supreme Court takes a few dozen cases every year and the lower courts take tens and tens of thousands. Right. So it's important to understand what's going on down there. Now, before we continue, we should talk a little bit about the structure of federal courts. I think generally speaking, our federal courts are a three tiered system. 
And this is, you know, this is first day of law school stuff, but I figure not everyone's an expert, right? Mm -hmm. The lowest type of federal court is the district court, what you might call the trial court. And there are a bunch of those. Above them, if you want to appeal from the district courts, you get to the appellate courts or the circuit courts. And then if you appeal from them, you get to the Supreme Court. Right. And those are the three basic layers of the cake of our judicial system. <laughs> Beautifully put, Peter. Thank you. Just came to me. So Donald Trump appointed 226 federal judges during mm-hmm. his presidency. Of those, 54 were appeals court judges. To put that in perspective, it's about a quarter of all federal judges mm-hmm. and a third of the appeals court judges. If you want to get into demographics, about 24% women, which is low. I don't know if you, Michael, are aware <laughs> of the current statistics, but they're about half the the population. I think they're actually a little more than half and, and well more than half of law graduates right now. Right. 16%. Non-white, also quite low. Yeah, (laughs) doesn't sound representative at all. In fact, as a percentage of his appointments, Jimmy Carter appointed more non-white judges to the federal bench (laughs) forty-five years ago. That's that's a fact. That's a not even by a a small amount either, by like seven percent. That's nuts. I mean, of you have to think about law grads who are qualified for the federal bench, right? Yeah, in the seventies, with the levels of discrimination that they had been facing for the prior decades. That's unbelievable. It's just obscene. So, I think the key point here is that all of this was done with a fairly startling efficiency. Trump appointed nominees at a very high clip relative to past presidents. And mm-hmm. part of Mitch McConnell's broader strategy was to sort of focus on the courts to ensure continued conservative government in this country. We've mentioned on the pod before that about a decade ago, there's a lot of chatter about the decline of the GOP due to changing demographics. And in response to that, rather than change its policy positions to make itself more appealing, the party embraced a strategy of simply subverting and neutralizing democracy itself. Mm -hmm. The front prong of that attack is the party's voter suppression efforts. But another important aspect is the party's efforts to control the judiciary, which, while selected by elected officials, is detached enough from the democratic process that it can be described as sort of nominally democratic at best. And this component of the broader strategy is key because without the judiciary, the voter suppression portion becomes impossible, right? The right's anti-democratic efforts rest in large part on its ability to, to maintain control of the courts. Right. And, you know, in order to control the courts, it's not just that, like, you need the presidency and the Senate. You also, like, need, like, a ready supply of party loyalists to install mm-hmm. You need a vetted list of like hundreds of lawyers you can absolutely trust to be your guys. And the Republican Party has that thanks to the Federal Society, which we talked about tons of times on the podcast. And Trump pretty much outsourced his judicial nominations to the former head of the Federal Society, Leonard Leo, Mm -hmm. who infamously helped pick John Roberts and Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, but also dozens, if not hundreds of lower court judges. Right. So I think it would be fun to go through some of the other worst of the worst who we're dealing with here. Yeah. I think it's important as we go through these to remember why these people are like this. Obviously, they are reactionary psychos with just 
grotesque politics and a moral center that is completely untethered from the realities of the human experience. (laughs) But they're also putting on a show. Yeah. Right. They are making a presentation to the Republican Party, to the Federalist Society and to conservatives writ large. They want to elevate their profile so that they can potentially put themselves in line for a Supreme Court seat Mm -hmm. or at least gain sway within the movement. Right. Mm -hmm. Gain some influence within conservatism more broadly and maybe get a slot speaking at CPAC or something like that. Something fun. And how do you get the attention and approval of conservatives? There is only one way. You trigger the libs. That's right. That's how the game is played. There's nothing that appeals to conservatives more than being unappealing to liberals. <laughs> and I think that's important to keep in mind because it helps explain why these people reach such sort of batshit heights. They're pandering to a crowd, right? right. So every time you want to take a step back and say, why are they so stupid? Why are they so heartless? That's why. Because they are making a specific point. They're... Yeah reaching out to that audience and saying, look how stupid and heartless I am. Right. <laughs> so I think we've got to start with him. Justin Walker, mm. appointed in June 2019 at the ripe age of 37 years old <laughs> to be a judge in the Western District of Kentucky. And then in June 2020, at the age of 38, elevated to the D.C. Circuit of Appeals, arguably the most prestigious and important appeals court in the country. This guy's the same age as me. It's so upsetting. (laughs) So fun story about him. The American Bar Association gave him a rating of not qualified when he was nominated to the lower court. (laughs) But then one year later, when he was nominated to the higher appeals court, they said he was qualified, citing his experience on the lower court. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for all you do, American Bar Association. Yeah. Walker clerked for Brett Kavanaugh before Kavanaugh was on the Supreme Court and rose to some prominence in 2018 as a vocal supporter of the Kavanaugh confirmation, gave over 100 interviews during the confirmation process, unhampered by the fact that the allegations against Kavanaugh revolved around an incident that occurred in the year that Justin Walker was born, (laughs) just kind of gunning for it. He sort of got his star doing this. He was a protege of Mitch McConnell's interning for McConnell when he was in college and subsequently being hand-selected for nomination to the federal bench by McConnell himself, and they remain friendly. So we want to give a good example or two for each judge about the worst cases. Mm -hmm. And uh, for Walker, it's shockingly easy. (laughs) Last year, many courts heard challenges from churches and other religious organizations to restrictions on religious gatherings due to covid Uh, You might remember that we covered one a few months ago. Uh, Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn v. Cuomo made its way to the Supreme Court. But maybe the worst of the bunch across the country was the opinion that Walker authored. Mm -hmm. Last spring, the mayor of Louisville implemented some restrictions on public gatherings, including church services. And this is in the vicinity of Easter. And one pastor who was holding drive-in services challenged the restrictions under the First Amendment saying that he should be able to have drive-in services and that they're safe. Mm -hmm. And Walker issues an opinion that is just several pages of nonstop grandstanding. It starts with, quote, On Holy Thursday, an American mayor criminalized the communal celebration of Easter. (laughs) That's so ridiculous and offensive. Uh, So that's obviously not really true. Also, I'm not sure if if there's anyone who needs to know what Holy Thursday is. It's like the Thursday before Easter, 
Uh, I think like the Last Supper happened on Holy Thursday. But yeah, so he gets executed on Good Friday. On Saturday, I think he's just kind of huddling up with God. Mm. And then on Sunday, that's Easter, and he comes down back to earth and announces that he's not Jewish anymore. Right. That's that's what Easter is. That sounds right. I haven't read the Bible like front to back, but that's what I think happens. So, all right. Walker then compares this rule uh, about drive-in services to something from a dystopian novel. Uh. He starts off on a garbled narrative that tracks the story of the biblical Abel to the pilgrim colony at Plymouth. Yeah. <laughs> And then he starts talking about historical violations of the of freedom of religion, including slave owners flogging slaves at prayer meetings, Harvard University quotas on the admission of Jews and ties between the government and the KKK. Mm. He's juxtaposing the beating of slaves in the terror campaigns of the KKK with covid related restrictions on church services last April. Mm-hmm. Truly unhinged shit. Yeah. Even more bizarre. It turns out. Louisville had no intentions of enforcing a drive-in church ban, but Walker issued the order without hearing from the government at all. And so rather than having a like 20 minute conference call with the parties to sort out the dispute, we get this nonsensical decision. You know, if Walker had been a lawyer for even just (laughs) a few years and had like some trial experience, which my understanding is he had literally none. He might have known that that's pretty standard stuff, right? You just have a little right. You have a little conference and see if you can't hash things out. Yeah, but what if your goal is not to hash things out? What if your goal <laughs> right. is to write an insane decision uh, that everyone in the country reads? That's a fair point. Also, just want to quickly note he he also ruled in favor of a homophobic photographer who, due to her particular strain of Christian beliefs, did not want to photograph same sex weddings and said so expressly on her website. This is like the ongoing mm, yeah. cake wars, the cake baking wars. Uh, Not the one you like on food TV. Different, <laughs> different cake wars. <laughs> right. So Justin Walker, he's a winner, but I don't want to just stick to white men. Mm-hmm. I think we should turn to uh, some women of color. Absolutely. Right. Don't blame this all on white men. We're committed to diversity here at 5-4. Uh, so we want to talk a little bit about Naomi Rao. Hell yeah. Trump appointed Rao to the D.C. Circuit in March 2019, just a few days before she turned 46. She had been previously serving in his administration by heading up OIRA, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, Mm -hmm. um, undergrad degree from Yale, a JD from Chicago, clerked for Clarence Thomas mm-hmm. and has worked, you know, in the Bush administration and was a tenured professor at our favorite law school, George Mason's Antonin Scalia School of Law, aka Ass, Ass law. law. And it turns out she was actually one of the big people pushing to name it Ass Law. So thank you, Judge Rao, for that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, a lot of times when we're talking about these ghouls, like it's hard to tell which of their horrible ideas are like true beliefs, mm-hmm. which are ones they've just sort of like cynically adopted, right, to maintain their position in the conservative movement. So I do want to give Rao credit for, you know, making clear she does have some real heartfelt beliefs <laughs> oh, God. based on 25 years of public statements and professional work. She really does seem to think that many, if not most, victims of sexual assault 
we're asking for it. Yeah. And that is, that's, you know, really goes to her heart. So in one article in 1993, she wrote that misunderstandings occur from subtle glances, ambiguous words. Uh, so feminists shouldn't be so quick to celebrate short skirts and bright lipstick. Uh. <laughs> in another truly disgusting article in 1994, this is when she was at Yale yeah. as a bright-eyed college student. This is her idealistic phase. Yeah, this, exactly. This is what she's doing with her free time in college. She cast doubt on one of her classmates who had been sexually assaulted after a fraternity party, suggesting that maybe the woman was uh, just feeling a little regret after drinking too much, and also stating that, and I quote, a good way to avoid a potential date rape oh. is to stay reasonably sober. Oh, God. Thank you. So no surprise that, you know, when she was in the Trump administration heading up OIRA, she presided over uh, Title IX rule changes that made it much harder for survivors of sexual assault to press their claims, right. made it much easier and sometimes required for schools to toss them out. Right. And at her confirmation hearing, she didn't even really disavow her victim-blaming Bullshit. She said that she was just making some common sense observations. So that's her. Oh boy. So she's pretty awful. But on the other hand, her truly awful decisions, I think, are cynically adopted positions. Right. I don't think they're true beliefs. <laughs> they really come off more as like shameless and corrupt carrying water for Trump. Yeah. And I don't know if that's because she's thankful that he gave her this post or if she was auditioning for a Supreme Court seat that eventually went to Amy Coney Barrett or a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. But she's just infamous at this point for essentially swearing fealty to Trump in her decisions. For example, when Trump tried to stonewall Congress from subpoenaing his records when they were investigating him in the course of their oversight duties, mm -hmm. the D.C. Circuit ordered him to turn the documents over. And Rao was on the panel and she dissented, writing one of the more absurd opinions I've ever read. I don't want to get too far into the details of how she tried to parse the difference between Congress wanting records in preparation for legislation versus Congress wanting records in preparation for impeachment. But just as an example of how transparently bullshit it was, her position was that Congress could only get documents related to oversight after impeaching the president, <laughs> saying impeachment is the method for getting that sort of information, <laughs> meaning you'd have to impeach first and then investigate whether the conduct and issue was actually an impeachable offense. What a queen. <laughs> this is what she put in, the, in her fucking opinion. It's insane. And for good measure, she also mentioned that uh, courts could decide what were and were not impeachable offenses, meaning that Judge Rao herself could decide whether or not uh, the Democrats could impeach Trump. Right. It's fucking nonsense. Right. And it's like such nonsense. You can't even chalk it up to being like profoundly stupid. Right. Like this is just shamelessly corrupt. Right. The other big case that like a lot of people probably have heard of at least somewhat is the case of Michael Flynn. He was uh, in the Obama administration and in the Trump administration in 2017. He pleaded guilty to charges of lying to the FBI during the Mueller probe. 
And with good reason, he absolutely did lie to the FBI. 100%. 100%. Everybody knew it. There was like a ton of evidence. He was caught red-handed with that shit. Mm -hmm. He wasn't sentenced at the time, despite pleading guilty, because there was like ongoing cooperation with the government. And, you know, you get credit for that and whatever. Mm -hmm. But then uh, a couple of years later, Bill Barr took over the DOJ. And in what was pretty clearly an effort to do Trump's dirty work, pressured the prosecutors to drop charges against hmm. Flynn, who they had already secured a conviction right. against and was just waiting for sentencing. Right. Usually you drop charges just so people know when like the process of continuing with charging them is going to be too onerous in some way. Right. You know, we don't have the energy or the evidence or whatever to pursue it. Right. At this point, they were ready to go. You just needed to be sentenced. Right. And they were like, no, we're going to drop it out of French. <laughs> right. right. And so the thing is, the federal rules of criminal procedure say that they can only do so with leave of the court, which means they can't just drop the charges. The judge, Judge Emmett Sullivan, had to sign off. To avoid your basic corruptions, right? Right, exactly. For maybe just scenarios precisely like this one, mm -hmm. right? Perhaps. And so Sullivan's not an idiot. He thought this seemed pretty fucked. Mm -hmm. And so he asked for like briefings on whether or not he had to dismiss the case, whether or not there was something improper going on. And before those briefings and those hearings even happen, Flynn appeals to the D.C. Circuit where he gets a panel that includes Judge Rao. And Judge Rao writes an opinion agreeing with him and requiring the district court judge to dismiss the charges. Mm -hmm. It's such a garbage opinion, butchering the case law so badly that the rest of the D.C. Circuit asked to rehear it on their own. Usually it's like the parties will be like, oh, they'll request a rehearing from the full circuit. But this was like her colleagues, right? right? Like other judges were like, no, right, <laughs> no right. we're taking this from you. And they reversed 8-2. The only two people were the two on the panel that she was on, her and her fellow judge who originally ruled in favor of Flynn. Everybody else were like, you're fucking clowns. Like you're an embarrassment. Right. I really think that Rao would be on the Supreme Court, but Trump thinks Amy Coney Barrett's hotter. <laughs> That's what's going on here. It's the only thing that explains it because Rao did so much good sucking up. Yes, she did. Uh, over the last couple of years. She did everything she could. No, I think she would have been number one for real. I was being serious. <laughs> well, I read that she pissed off some conservative in her, um, in her confirmation hearings. Mm. So there was like one or two senators who didn't like her, and I think that killed it. But I think she would have been number one. She, she's the perfect Trump judge, right? This is precisely what he wants. Female POC. It's just middle fingers to the Dems yes. the whole way. Yeah. They would have loved it. Yeah, exactly. All right. I think what we've been missing so far with these judges is someone named Kyle. <laughs> so Kyle Duncan, Judge Kyle Duncan. Nice. Appointed by Trump in 2017 to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, the most conservative appeals court in the country. Before that, he was a prosecutor. He claims that he was solicitor general for Louisiana, although uh, light research reveals that that position did not exist at the time. So <laughs> not sure exactly what's going on That's there. Incredible. And he was a lawyer for the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, a conservative litigation outfit that brings cases about, uh, you know, how religious people shouldn't have to talk to gays or whatever. Uh, and in that capacity, represented Hobby Lobby in Burwell v. Hobby Lobby, which we did an episode on. And that case sort of rose his profile and put him in the limelight and gave him a chance to be a federal judge. 
He was another star of the pandemic for conservatives. Many of you may recall that many conservative states used COVID as an excuse to block abortion access. Texas was one of them, passing a law that essentially said that abortion providers were diverting medical resources away from COVID and like therefore needed to be restricted. This is the one time that conservative states were actually claiming to proactively do something about COVID. (laughs) They did absolutely nothing except they were like, well, we do need to shut down abortion clinics because like they're taking away hospital beds or whatever, more or less. Duncan upheld that ban more than once. Real psycho shit. Yeah. But I think his worst case is one where a trans woman made a motion to go by her preferred pronouns. Duncan denied that motion. First, he basically says, well, there's no law requiring that we use someone's preferred pronouns, uh, which is, I think, more or less true. But then, and this is where it gets sort of exceptionally offensive, he says that to use the preferred pronouns would bring the court's impartiality into question. Basically, he's saying that if you use the person's pronouns, you're showing bias in their favor. What the fuck? Why it doesn't show bias against them to openly reject their chosen pronouns and misgender them throughout the opinion, (laughs) which, of course, he does, is not really addressed. He then says it's a slippery slope to let litigants gender themselves because some might want to use more obscure pronouns such as like Z and Zir and Those are examples he gives, by the way. And he ends the analysis with, quote, we decline to enlist the federal judiciary in this quixotic undertaking. (sighs) What a fucking real Breitbart comment section sort of judicial opinions Mm -hmm. coming from this fucking guy. He sounds like a dead naming piece of shit. Yeah. Classic Kyle's. Yeah. You know, it's (laughs) it's a Kyle move. (laughs) Okay, I'm a little heated. Can we take a break before we continue? Yeah. All right. And we're back. And Peter. I'll see your Kyle Mm -hmm. and I will raise you one Donnie Ray Willett. (laughs) 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 I bet you didn't know that Don Willett, Don is short for Donnie, not not Donald. Incredible. So Donnie Ray, he was born and raised in Texas. Really? Who would have (laughs) guessed? Now that Ray's not here, I can talk all the shit about Texas I want. (laughs) Nothing less surprising than Donnie Ray being a Texas boy. Yeah. He also, like any cartoon caricature of a Texan, Loves to use little quips, little Southern, you know, aphorisms, mm-hmm. like saying his town was so small. The first digit in their zip code was a decimal. Nice. Oh. Classic Donnie Ray. So Trump put this guy on the bench in 2018 in the ultra conservative uh, Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. But prior to that, he had a long history in conservative circles. He worked for George W. Bush, both when he was mm-hmm. a governor of Texas and in the White House. He worked for Greg Abbott, current governor of Texas, back when he was the attorney general in Texas Mm -hmm. and won re-election holding that seat in 2012 by uh, famously in legal circles, taking to Twitter as a means of communication. Uh In fact, there's a quote in SCOTUS blog about him. There's a tweet describing himself. He said he's probably the tweetingest judge in America, which admittedly is like being the tallest munchkin in Oz. It's always cool to see uh, some really creative, folksy ableism. (laughs) That's right. He's also very much part of the religious right as a graduate of the conservative Baptist school, Baylor University, Mm -hmm. as one time 
advisor to the George W. Bush administration on faith issues, who was credited with helping create the Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives. I remember those guys. That's a throwback. <laughs> that is a real early aughts name there. Yeah. He defended the Ten Commandments monument when working for the Texas AG. And on the Texas Supreme Court, he sided with high school cheerleaders who wanted to put religious messages on their banners. God, how obnoxious would it be if you're just trying to play football and the cheerleaders are like holding up a sign that says like Jesus saves? You're like, oh, come on. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> just, just root for us, please. So he also has a reputation as being like a principled libertarian. And so between that and his love of Twitter, he's become like a bit of a darling of like the online academic set, mm -hmm. you know, appellate Twitter. They love someone who with fake principles. Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. Also, our producer is laughing, but appellate Twitter is a real thing that refers to itself as such. Right. You can type <laughs> hashtag appellate Twitter into your search bar and find some of the biggest losers in law. Just the fucking worst. <laughs> They can't just call themselves law Twitter because it's like not prestigious enough. Yeah. You have to call yourselves appellate Twitter. Mm -hmm. the, all the smart people do appeals. God, insufferable. Yeah. And they'll tell you, even the liberal appellate Twitter types will tell you that, you know, Will, it's one of the good ones. Right, you'll right. criticize the Supreme Court for being too lax with cop abuse because he's a libertarian. In fact, this very month. Twitter liberals were like having a competition to see who could suck his dick harder <laughs> because he wrote some opinion criticizing the Supreme Court on like a cop protecting doctrine, mm -hmm. a mm -hmm. Bivens, which is why I want to talk about him. Because like every conservative and plenty of liberals at that, to be honest, when it comes to criminal justice issues, he actually sucks. Right, <laughs> like, right. The guys. And so, you know, the first case I want to make you aware of, you might actually have heard of because the facts were so horrific. Mississippi police decided a disabled man was a vagrant. And so they detained him, put him in their car, drove him to the county border and then dropped him off on the highway in the middle of nowhere at night. And then what do you know? A car hit and killed him. Right. I think we talked about this case on our qualified immunity episode, but maybe I'm wrong. We may have. Yeah, I, I don't know. Right. So the question before the court is, hey, is arresting someone and then dumping them into the middle of nowhere an obvious constitutional violation? Or should the cops get qualified immunity so that they can't be sued? Right. And will it was the deciding vote in a 2-1 decision that said, yeah, these guys should get qualified immunity. <sighs> They even conceded that this was like pretty obviously unconstitutional, but still said, sorry, you can't sue them because we don't have like precisely on point case. So this, this case is uh, harder than catching an armadillo in a rainstorm. <laughs> That's right. It's a cool saying I just that, made up. It seems like it works. That was Willett's one line concurrence. <laughs> <laughs> That's your champion on criminal justice. Yeah. And then on non-criminal justice issues, he's just a standard issued conservative. I think he's actually maybe more conservative than most, more extreme. He recently dissented on an abortion case striking down a Texas law that required dilation and extraction abortions. Hey, hey guys. Rachel. I'm sorry. What's up? I think it's dilation and evacuation. Oh, dilation and evacuation. You know, like Let's evacuate see. the dance floor, pretty much the same. <laughs> <laughs> okay. He recently dissented on an abortion case, striking down a Texas law that required certain abortion procedures, dilation and evacuation 
to include an extra procedure, making them more painful, last longer, and possibly less safe. In that opinion, he did, you know, a favorite move of the conservative bench, which is describing in graphic detail how abortions are performed with the goal of trying to disgust the reader. In addition, he has criticized the Supreme Court on Bostock, which is a case we've discussed, which is the very rare good Supreme Court decision, which, if you'll recall, extended Title VII protections in the workplace to LGBTQ mm-hmm. employees. Uh, he didn't like that at all and said it was turning statutory interpretation into like reading code. Uh-huh. I don't even know. I, whatever. He said trying to uh, <laughs> Here we go. make sense of the court's reasoning is like trying to find a tumbleweed in a bush. <laughs> there you go. He dissented on a panel that found a state congressional district violated the Voting Rights Act by diluting black voting power. He's dog shit on gun control, a real Second Amendment type. He just sucks. Don't let any dipshit liberal law professor tell you otherwise. I feel like they're trying to do like Scalia part two with this guy and just he sucks. He sucks. Yeah. Trying to defend him. It's like trying to hunt hunt an alligator with a (laughs) mouse. Thank you, Peter. I didn't pre-write these, (laughs) by the way. I don't know if you can tell. I'm shocked. I feel like you've been polishing them for a week. I'm coming back with more next week. (laughs) Subscriber bonus content and me just rattling these off for an hour and a half. (laughs) All right. We have to wrap up our discussion of these folks with Allison Jones rushing. Yeah. Rushing appointed to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals in 2019 when she was uh, 14 years old. Uh, No, 37. 37. Sorry, I misread. Before that, she sort of made her way around the right wing psycho circuit, interning for a weirdo nonprofit Mm -hmm. called the Alliance Defending Freedom, clerking for several judges, including Neil Gorsuch and Clarence Thomas, and then working for the very prestigious D.C. law firm Williams and Connolly uh, until she was appointed to the bench. Her internship for the Alliance Defending Freedom was a bit of a hiccup in her confirmation hearings because their aggressive anti-LGBT positions had resulted in them being labeled a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. When asked about it, she said, quote, hate is wrong and it should have no place in our society. Yeah, I feel much better. Yeah, reassuring. She's already had a host of offensive opinions, especially on immigration issues. But I'd like to talk about a Fourth Amendment stop and frisk case that she handled. In that case, there was a report of a bar fight and a witness told the cops that a black guy with red pants and a black shirt had a gun and was walking away from the scene. Mm. The witness did not say that the guy was involved in the fight. Right. This is West Virginia, where open carry is legal. So you're allowed to have a gun. Police find this guy or someone that matches the description, stop and frisk him. And then that guy is like, well, hey, that was unconstitutional. Yeah. And Rushing says, no, it was fine. Despite the fact that if you're keeping track, the police had no reason to believe that this guy had violated the law. None. (laughs) I mean, if that's not unconstitutional, then like. It's wild, dude. What can't cops do? Right. And it's like the Philando Castile shooting where it's like Mm -hmm. very obvious who they're talking about when they talk about gun rights. Right. And like what image they have in their minds. Mm -hmm. And here's this guy arrested for having a gun, which is perfectly legal in West Virginia. And you have a federal judge being like, no, yeah, that makes sense. It's just wild. I mean, what do they believe the Second Amendment is? 
if not something that would protect a circumstance right. like this. Right. So we promised you a list of the worst of the worst, and I think we delivered on that. But <laughs> Trump appointed hundreds of judges. So I think it's important to understand what the average Trump judge looks like as well. Right. So like just an example of what I mean, I want to talk about really briefly Drew Tipton. I don't think he's like a terrible monster in in the vein uh, of those guys. He's just kind of more like banally shitty. Mm -hmm. He's also pretty unremarkable. Like when I was reading his resume, I was like, how the fuck did this guy get like a judgeship, right? He was like <laughs> a Marine Reserve in his 20s. Then after he left the armed services, he went to... South Texas College of Law, which is, I had never heard of it. Yeah, I haven't either. <laughs> and then he did like corporate work in Texas. He didn't have a pedigree where he worked in politics. He didn't work for, you know, a governor or an attorney general or any of that shit. Right, right. But then in 2010, a decade into his legal career, he was like, oh, you know what? I, I got a good idea. I'm going to join the Federal Society. <laughs> and, and he did. Mm -hmm. And he gave some money to uh, Ted Cruz and John Cornyn's Senate campaigns. And boom, a few years later, he's a judge. Nice. <laughs> Easy peasy. All you got to do is uh, prove your worth to them for a yeah. few years with membership, right? And so what does the party get from that? Well, Biden issued an executive order halting almost all deportations for the first 100 days of his administration. Uh -huh. And- Texas sued and Drew Tipton, newly minted Trump judge, sided with Texas and said, sorry, you have to deport people. Right. <laughs> Which is a fucking <laughs> insane thing for a judge to say. It's nuts. Like, yeah. The opinion is like laughable in general, and the guy clearly doesn't understand immigration law at all, but also especially considering that immigration is usually where... Congress and the president get to do whatever they right. want and courts are like very reticent. So, I mean, these are, this is the sort of clown shit that you expect from federal society goons, even at the lower levels. Yeah. That's a great example of just how I don't want to be too prestige obsessed or something. For sure. But it is interesting how a lot of the judges are being drawn from what appears to be a non-traditional pool of potential nominees, right? Rather than go around right. the fancy schools like like Republicans generally would and try to find their candidates. Right. They're looking a little broader, looking for psychos everywhere, right? <laughs> right. Looking right. really for more of a mental disease than they are for <laughs> a particular degree. I, I, not to, since you're clearly joking, but still, I was going to say, like, I don't want to sound elitist. Like, I appreciate the need for academic and socioeconomic diversity on the bench. Mm -hmm. But like, it's not like they're going and finding like somebody who's like passionate and doing federal defense, right? Like the left is looking for, right? Like he's not yeah, right. out there toiling away or whatever. Right. He's just a dude. He was just like a lawyer, <laughs> like just a guy who just joined the federal society and like schmoozed with the right people. Yeah. That's the dream of every young nut job in law school uh, in the federal society, right? <laughs> You shake the right hands, throw some money to the right people, and you wake up a federal judge. Right. A man's living the dream. Right. So now that we've discussed uh, all these fucking ghouls, I want to take a second and reflect on the failures of the left mm -hmm. <laughs> in preventing this from happening and, and in some ways facilitating it. Uh -huh. So I think a good place to start is with the Obama administration. Yeah. Because in eight years, Barack Obama only appointed one more appellate judge 
55 than Trump did in four years, 54. So that is a pretty good illustration of just how much worse Democrats are than Republicans at this. Mm -hmm. Apologists will try to point to stonewalling, you know, the Democrats didn't hold the House for the last two years of Obama's term, but still he had six years. And the truth is they made a point of not emphasizing judges. Rahm Emanuel said that he thought it would be a distraction from their legislative agenda. Yeah. Thank God they focused on that. Right. (laughs) One good law passed in eight years. (laughs) Which was gutted by the Supreme Court and the lower courts. And so here's the thing, though, like Barack Obama is not just like a politician, right? He was a fucking law professor. He's like a product of the legal academy. If anybody should understand the importance of holding the judiciary and appointing judges that share your values. Mm-hmm. It should be a professor. But this was like the most lawyer-brained and law professor-brained thing, which is that like the liberal legal left thinks that judges shouldn't be political, right? right. That like there would be something untoward about being so openly partisan. Right. And so Rahm Emanuel says, look, we're politicians and we're trying to pass laws. And Obama's like, "Mm -hmm. right. Yeah, I buy that. And as a result, they dragged their asses and there were a lot of vacancies and that left Trump with a huge opportunity. Right. Yeah. And, And so that was their failure to treat this with any sense of urgency. But that's not the only failure of the left. Like we discussed at the top. One of the reasons the Republicans are so good at this is because they have the Federalist Society, which gives them just a stream of candidates. Mm -hmm. Now, the Biden administration is trying to be better. They are putting an emphasis on judges. They're trying to do it quick. They're saying they're not going to let Republicans stonewall it. And what's more, they're listening to the left and foregoing the usual credentials of prosecutors and corporate attorneys and looking to like activist groups for guidance. But here's the thing. This is what Republicans were doing in the 70s and 80s, right? Looking to their activist groups and casting about for for names. And that's how they ended up with people like Blackman and Souter, who they didn't fully know and didn't fully trust, who ended up like not being who they wanted them to be, right? The Democrats are 40 years behind the Republicans here. They shouldn't need to be casting about. They shouldn't need to be talking to several different activist groups. They should have a list, right? Joe Biden should be walking in with a list of like 500 trusted names that they could plop in on any single position that's open. And which is what the Federalist Society has, right? They've got like the fantasy football power rankings that they just hand to the administration. Absolutely. And like you can deviate from the list slightly, but not really, right? Right. And Trump had absolutely no reason to like do anything other than just adhere to it strictly. So they just ran down the list. Right, exactly. And the Democrats don't have that and they're not close to that. You know, we talk about what could be the answer, but nobody's trying to build it. Right. Right. Nobody's actually trying to turn ACS into that, as far as I can tell. No, there's no effort on their end. And it's interesting because you had mentioned justices like Souter, who drifted left over the course of his career to the point where it was a relatively reliable liberal vote. Mm -hmm. And conservatives 
learn from that, right? Mm-hmm. And the project they've built works because through the Federalist Society, they have a mechanism for reliably gauging the ideology of judges, right. and they've refined it over time. So it's better than it was in the 80s by a mile. And mm-hmm. now, not only do they want judges who are consistently interpreting the law in certain ways, but they want judges who have been tested. Tested in court is great, right. but even better is tested in some kind of political public forum. They want to see that you hold the line when the pressure is on, right? And that's why mm-hmm. they rally around people like Kavanaugh, right. who are not just jurisprudentially conservative, but publicly struggled against the liberal media, right? It's sort of forged in fire. right? That's how they ensure that they have people who are less likely to drift to the left, like David Souter did. They look for people who are tied to the broader conservative movement by more than just politics and ideology, You know, earlier in the episode, we talked about how the lower courts are a pipeline to the Supreme Court. Of course, the ranks of the Supreme Court are largely chosen from the lower courts. And I had mentioned that a lot of these judges are engaging in a bit of dress rehearsal, right? They're showing what they could do. You know, look how fucking crazy I can be, right? I'm not going to have a 10-minute conference with the parties to resolve this issue. I'm just going to put out a crazy opinion about, like, the pilgrims (laughs) that gets blasted all over MSNBC, Right. That's what they want. They look at someone like that and they think that's a winner. That's someone who is never going to deviate, who understands the project. Right. Mm. How you need to understand what the right is doing right now that they're so far developed that not only do they have mechanisms for tracking the jurisprudence of different judges, but they have all of these sort of extrinsic factors for weighing how effective they're going to be at holding the line and sticking to their ideological commitments. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a big part of the premise of this podcast is that the judiciary is a political branch Mm -hmm. and the court's jurisprudence is best understood as an outgrowth of the politics and ideology of its members. And countless people have approached us and said that, like, we changed their understanding of the court and the law, which is very cool. And we appreciate it. But please understand that we did not pioneer this concept. Right. Elite conservatives have understood it for 40 years. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like, you know, some of them, like Anil Gorsuch, drank the Kool-Aid a bit and believes that their jurisprudential theories are sort of objective truths. Mm-hmm. But the puppet masters, the the Mitch McConnells of the world, yeah. they do not. They stalled Obama's nominations and stole a Supreme Court seat and efficiently packed the lower courts because they understand that it is no substantively different than controlling legislatures across the country. Right. But one thing I've been struggling to articulate is that I think part of the reason that Democrats and liberals have been so slow to react to the Federalist Society apparatus and the Republican focus on the courts is that it's so deeply absorbed the formalistic conservative line that the interpretation of the law is an objective science Mm -hmm. that is separable from politics. If they hadn't absorbed that so deeply, you could see them reacting more rapidly to the Federalist Society and what was happening on the right. But they were sort of lulled into a sense of complacency. And only as Republicans have made it sort of increasingly obvious what they are doing through the Merrick Garland debacle and so on, maybe even arguably overplaying their hand Mm -hmm. a bit, have mainstream liberals sort of started to understand what the stakes are here, what the other side is doing. And while, you know, again, we haven't seen a real coordinated response from Democrats and liberals in the left, Mm. you're starting to see rumblings a little bit, a shift in perception. Yeah. And so, you know, maybe to end on a positive note, we can talk a bit about that, because the one thing that I saw that happened last year was the American Constitution Society's board had a drama 
with respect to the fact that one of its board members, elected, by the way, is just a high-ranking Amazon lawyer. And specifically related to labor. I think the top labor lawyer at Amazon, which just means union buster in chief. Right. Right. That's what you do at Amazon. Mm -hmm. That's the sort of operation it is. They're an organization that oversees a large number of employees who would very much like to unionize. And a huge part of their operation is preventing that from happening. That guy was reelected in December mm-hmm. to the board amid controversy. Right. And the controversy is what I want to talk about, because obviously the fact that yeah. he was reelected is a pretty dark sign. For leadership. Right. I mean, it's very clear that people at the top of the organization do not perceive of themselves as sort of a federalist society. Ideological. Right. An ideological counterweight. Right. But there are people within the organization who do. Mm -hmm. And the pressure seems to have resulted in him stepping down last month. Right. I don't think we know exactly why he stepped down, but it stands to reason that internal pressure is why. Mm -hmm. So there are sort of potential shakeups happening at the American Constitution Society. I don't know that that's going to be the organization that moves us forward. For the same reason that the mainstream Democrats are themselves not a vessel for change, they've intertwined themselves too much with big business interests, et cetera. And so like the American Constitution Society is in a place where its board members are just like incredibly powerful corporate corporate lawyers instead of people who actually believe in like any sort of lefty principle. Right. You know, I've been thinking about this a lot lately and you read these books about the history of the Federalist Society a lot of its early success was that it like by being like sort of explicitly and at least ostensibly nonpartisan, it was sort of able to be broadly accepted in academic circles as like, oh, it's just a debating club and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But I feel like the left answer has to be the opposite. It has to be ideological. Mm-hmm. It has to be partisan. It has to be something that people look at and are like, yeah. I want to do this because I believe in their mission. Right. 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 I believe in the shared struggle that we're going to embark on together. So that's not the ACS. No. It's never going to be the ACS. It's probably never going to be the Democratic Party because it's too much of a big coalition party to do that. Yeah. It's hard to envision what the counterweight to the Federalist Society would be, mostly because the Federalist Society, like every sort of right wing machination over the last 50 years is built in large part on money. Absolutely. Which we don't have a lot of. Now, once our Patreon really starts to (laughs) pop, who knows? The sky is the limit for the future of of leftist (laughs) legal circles. Mm -hmm. But I do think that there has been a change in the last few years, especially not just as the left has been a bit more ascendant, but also as the right has made its political project with respect to the courts much more obvious and transparent. Mask off. Right. You've started to see an interest in counteracting it. And we spoke with Ro Khanna a few months ago, and he talked about things like court packing. And obviously, I don't think he's ever really going to support it, at least not anytime super soon, nor do I think the Democratic Party will. But to have a congressman even Mm -hmm. talking about it as if it were something to entertain, is miles away from where we were five years ago, let alone 20 years ago. Right. For that reason, I feel sort of optimistic. I agree. This is, I feel like, where usually Rhiannon would be looking so (laughs) bored that we would be like, okay, it's time to wrap up the episode. But we don't have that now. So we're just going to keep going. (laughs) (laughs) We are now reaching the halfway point of this episode. Next week is Connick v. Thompson. 
case about whether when a prosecutor frames someone and gets them sentenced to death, the prosecutor should get in trouble for that. <laughs> That's right. It's going to be a good one. Follow us on Twitter at 54pod. Thank you for being a Patreon supporter. Much appreciated. You are all beloved, and I think you're heroes. Right. Heroes of the leftist legal movement. At the vanguard. Thank you. 5 to 4 is presented by Prologue Projects. This episode was produced by Rachel Ward with editorial support from Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY, and our theme song is by Spatial Relations.